Well, good evening or good day. Uh, it's Charlie. This is the podcast To Hell and Back. Um, and uh, it is uh, January 30th. It's Massachusetts, where I am, uh, where my guest is. It's uh, Connecticut. And we're both in the same time zone, so it's six o'clock in the Eastern uh, time. And uh, today, um, the plan is con to continue into the third part of a conversation with Seth Axelrod, who, if you have had a chance to listen to either or both of the last two podcasts, I've, we've been talking for two hours of total about um, the experiences he's had living with cancer for the last six years, um, how that, uh, what the challenges have been, uh, how he has coped with that, and with particular reference to some DBT skills. And so we're gonna continue today. And you know, um, and it might seem like, uh, oh my God, that's a lot of time. But I have to tell you, my experience um, is that it's been like, like just a drop of time um, because trying to get the story, trying to hear what has happened, uh, what has unfolded, uh, what, have it, having space and time to react to that, and reflect on that and, and have my own emotional responses to that and find out more about that and learn how he's coped with that and, and then follow up on that. It's just unbelievable how big this is. Um, and I think all of you who are listening, whatever have been the biggest challenges in your life, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like time gets compressed. Um, there's so much to put in. So we've been doing this and um, today we're gonna continue and I think get into more, some more details and. I, I think the stage is set really to jump into some things we haven't been able to get to yet. And so I have a little outline of how we're going to do this to try to, uh, that Seth and I've worked on together. And, um, and I also want to announce um, that I'm really very uh, touched and pleased that his wife, Rebecca, who has of course gone through all of this with him for the last six years and life before that and raising children with him and sharing a house with him and everything, that Rebecca has agreed to come on the podcast next week, which will be February 6th for an hour. And um, we'll continue the conversation with Seth here, but then turn over to Rebecca and what her experiences have been, her reflections, her perspective, what she's had to cope with, how she's done that, just wherever, we'll see where it goes. But I think it's a real opportunity that I'm grateful for. And I hope that you'll will tune in and be grateful for. Um, so here's, uh, I just wanna, set the stage for what we're doing, uh, partly just to help us be on track and cover the things we want to cover because I've realized this can be such a deep and meandering conversation. So here's what uh, I've come to in conjunction with Seth and talking about it. Here's the game plan. As somebody who wanted to spend his life playing professional basketball, that always comes to mind. Here's the game plan. First, I'm going to start out with just a very brief recap. Um, of what we've covered, not that you haven't listened, but just to put it together to kind of like have a starting point to take off from. And then I'm gonna hand it over to Seth to um, tell more details and of the evolution of how this has happened uh, since he was first diagnosed, which we've spent time on, and he faced surgery, which we've started to spend time on. Um, but he's gonna tell more about the actual illness and the unfolding of the illness uh, the unfolding of all of the pluses and minuses of how people coped with it and how people assessed it and what the choices were for treatment 
and how he made those decisions and how he kept his life going during this time, um, and all the way right up to now. And so that's a big job. And uh, uh, so we'll get right to him in just a couple of minutes, but um, we'll do that. And during that, I'm hoping we'll move in and out of how he has coped with that from an emotional point of view and as a person who's having to deal with all of this. So uh, that's, that's, that's the game plan. And it could get into lots of things. He and I have thought that huge, huge things for him have been forms of reality, acceptance, of awareness, uh, and of being willing to accept some conditions that he might not have ever thought about before six years ago, having to accept and figure out what to do with. So, uh, I'll, and he's gonna speak also to a question that came up on email that we haven't gotten to yet. So game plan, okay, I have, I have notes to keep me on track because any of you who know me well know that I can, going off track is my main mode. Um, so I'd say this, up to 2013, 2013, Seth's life was moving along. He had an 11 year old child, he had a 13 year old child, he had a wife, they were very, you know, a close family, as far as I can tell. He was involved in musical theater, in music, he, was, he had become a DBT teacher, an educator, a prof, an associate professor of, uh, in, the school, in psychiatry at Yale, uh, director of a DBT program. All of this was going on. Um, and other things, of course, in his life. And he had a community that he was involved with in uh, New Haven and the, the surrounding areas. And then, uh, then he starts having pain at some point that heads into 2013. And the pain goes as most pain does. You don't know what the source of it is. So it took a while to get to what the source of it was. But there were other ideas of what it was first, which were more benign. Uh, figuring out what to do. Oh, it's this with it. It was in his back. It was up against a rib. And maybe there was a problem with a rib and things like that. Until later in 2013, he had an MRI uh, because other things weren't making sense and the problem was continuing. And they discovered a uh, tumor that was uh, lodged against his spine and behind a rib. So it, it had not been easy to identify without a scan like that. And once identified, then it was also, I guess, biopsied right after that step. I realized I wasn't sure about that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's correct. He had a biopsy, and it was a bone tumor that was known as a chondrosarcoma, which is actually a tumor of cartilage, um, which is not that common and which comes in different varieties. And he'll tell you about that, some of which have better prognoses than others. Um, so that was still being worked up. And of course, he had to come to grips with, oh, my God. I have cancer, which is kind of like not easy to wrap your mind around. Um, and he, and, and he worked, you know, so on one track, he was beginning the path of acceptance of, oh, my God, this is what I have, without yet knowing what it would mean. So he's on a track of uncertainty, which has continued up to this very day of what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. Anxiety, sometimes fear, pain, uh, some surprising twists and turns in the course, some decisions to make. And so he was making decisions in 2013, 2014 about what to do. And there were options in front of him and there were back and forth between this versus this. So he was really having to tap into like really uh, researching, learning from experts, talking to people that are, that are at Yale, talking to people at 
by Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, figuring out what to do. Uh, just his life was sort of began to be taken over to some degree by this while he continued to do his work. And then he headed into a surgery. And that's about as far as we were getting in our conversation is that he was going to go into a surgery. I'll let him tell you about that uh, as part of the story. And those are, those are I think, I did, and I wanted to comment on some things that are really, I think, outstanding things that stay with me, things I've learned from Seth already that I are probably going to affect how I cope with future adversity, to tell you the truth. Uh, afraid I'm going to cry. I bet there's been moments like that for you, Seth. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm very touched, Charlie. I really, I'm, I'm really, truly, yeah. and I want to hear what you want to say, but I'm really, I'm touched. Thank you. Very much. His, his level of openness is extraordinary. His transparency, his willingness to come here, his genuineness with not only this podcast, but obviously this reflects his genuineness across the board with his colleagues, his friends, his family. Um, um, I, I've been impressed how he has, definitely better than I could, uh, cultivate his social support and keep it on board with him during this time. Um, I think he's been uh, really attentive to who is around him. It's almost like beginning in 2013, 2014, a journey began of an entire village and the village is friends of Seth, you know, and Seth's community. And he keeps them informed. He reinforces them for staying in touch. Um, he's grateful that genuinely that they're involved. So all of that kept going. So I've been impressed with that. It really stands out to me. It's not a DBT skill per se, but I think social support and maintaining a community of connection while you go through something like this is probably as important as almost anything. There's also been his closeness with his wife and his family. This wasn't one of those situations of which there are many where people in order to cope with severe distress pull away from the people they're close to and don't talk to them as much. Actually, it's far, what I can tell, I'm very interested in talking to Rebecca. You know, from the beginning, there's been an ongoing, like we're in this, we're in this together and let me keep you informed and, and let me accept what help I can get. There's been this uh, emphasis on radical acceptance of the manifestations and such a thoughtful approach to, gee, well, I have to accept pain because I can't make it go away. I have to accept the fact that I have cancer with whatever that means, and it could mean different things on different days. I have to accept the manifestations of having cancer, the tributaries once you have cancer, of all of the things that it brings you in contact with, which you never dreamed of before, um, uh, in your body, in your relationships, in your treatments, etc. cetera. And, um, and I've been so impressed, and I think this is a really important coping strategy, Again, that's not specifically, it's more of a social coping strategy. How to maintain your normal life to the degree you can while having your cancer life. It's sort of like, okay, now you have to add cancer life to normal life. And it's easy to imagine that cancer life is going to take over like a cancer and take over normal life. And then all you have is cancer life. But Seth has maintained within boundaries and with, with ongoing negotiation, how to stay involved in his work, how to stay involved in his teaching, uh, his consulting, um, his involvement with colleagues, uh, his uh, singing, uh, you know, his family life. So all of that, I think, has been very important. And as we spent some time on, I won't go back over it now. Uh, I've just been so impressed, uh, both just it's a nice quality, but also I think unbelievably helpful at times like this, the way in which he's used humor 
and sort of metaphor and narrative with, uh, as we said, talked about last time, Captain or Prot Proton, and then there's the Iron Man, and then there's other things that sort of like to put your illness journey into a story that might have some humor in it, might have some lightness in it, as well as heaviness, and might have a good outcome. You know, all of that might have some hope in it. So that's my introduction. I tried to be quicker than I usually am. Uh, I've, I, I've left some time, I think, most of the time for Seth to just pick up wherever you want, Seth. But I mean, I think where, where your story in 2013, 2014, and just help people see what you've been through. Thank, thank you, Charlie. Uh, uh, I, I want to say that uh, something we talked about um, last time we spoke offline was uh, what a privilege this is. You know, what, what a privilege this is to um, be speaking with you, to be getting your responses to this, um, and, and all the various ways that, that I have an experience of privilege in terms of um, the resources I've been able to throw at what I'm going through and access to things and, um, and privilege around uh, going through this with community, which we spoke about in the first time, our first mm -hmm. session, mm -hmm. that, that this is something that when I felt uh, need and when I, when I was concerned about my family, and I did broadcast within a closed Facebook, but I did broadcast that um, people were responsive and it made a huge difference and still does. You know, that when I put a post on, my, on, this, on this saga, um, that it gets, you know, 80 to, you know, 100 plus, whatever it is, um, wow. people responding with likes or comments or this or that. And, um, and when I see people, even if I don't see them often, you know, and they tell me about following this story and, and they talk about it with people in their lives. And, mm. um, and I yeah. have this experience, you know, that, that, that I get that from sharing um, really does help a lot. Mm. Now, this is a new experience, going, going public in this kind of, you know, without a, uh, a, any controlled filter, whoever, and I, I don't, you know, I, I expect that lots of people who know me in different ways are gonna hear this, listen to this. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't exactly know what, that's, what that will do. Right. Um, and yet, when I think about it, I see all kinds of positives. You know, I get to I get to have this this experience that I could be going through this this you know devastating thing, and um, have people's genuine responses to it, as opposed to uh, well, again going back to the first session, being invisible. Like I'm doing this, mm -hmm. and it's, and 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 what you said, some people just deal with it themselves. You know, they they don't share it. Um, there um, was a psychiatrist, very highly regarded, uh, who passed away some years ago. Um, we have a, a few, but one of them, going back several years, um, worked up until he he died of cancer. Mm. I don't know what cancer that was. I never knew he had cancer. Very mm. very few people in the work environment did, mm. um, and I respect that. That he he also chose to you know, work. Yeah. Um, but, um, but that was a very different approach mm -hmm. uh, than I've had, you know, and mm -hmm. that, you know, that's, that's me. That's my choice. Um, anyway, but I wanted to, I wanted to say that, that this is, it's humbling. 
and um, kind of amazing to be part of something like this and just want to put that out there. Um, I have been um, uh, tempted to touch on the, the humor thing and uh, and Rebecca and I talking about this podcast and reflecting and just noticing what a huge piece of the coping that's been, that there has been opportunities for laughter regularly. You know, there's different things. And I'll share one. Today I, I was, I was uh, uh, having, I had, I worked today. I was at work today. Hmm. I had medical appointments today and uh, met with a, a resident as part of my medical appointments. And, um, and he said something which I hear a lot. And this, and this connects to one of our, one of our, our favorite family jokes is um, if you want to look really good, get cancer, you know, because when you have cancer, because I'll tell you, when I, when I talk to people and they know I have cancer and this guy today, he told, you know, after interviewing me and doing the thing, he said, you know, you look great. Oh, right. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you. I hear so often about how good looking I am. <laughs> I don't know if I was good looking then, I have no idea. but now I'll tell you, I am like a really good looking guy. <laughs> You've gotten better and better looking. I am. I am. Yeah. And my kids, you know, they ask me, how many people told you you look good? You know, I go come back <laughs> somewhere. I'm like, oh, this person ever. Anyway, that's uh, <laughs> that uh, is funny. Yeah, there's another favorite one I may toss out later if I have the chance. Uh, but what I'd like to do, thinking about our, our talks, I haven't really laid things out, and I wanted to give a few facts about the, the disease and then also run through some of the bare bones of the story just to help put things in context for people who listen to these. One is the chondrosarcoma and um, the, the cancer, and it's unusual compared to some other cancers in that it's, it can be aggressive and slow growing at the same time. If it's high grade, and in my story, mine originally was thought to be low grade, but it's high grade. Um, if it's high grade, it's aggressive. Aggressive means that it likes to spread. That once you have it in one place, it likes to travel to other places and take root and do that. Hmm. And that makes it hard to treat. Um, uh, and, but it's slow growing. When it hits somewhere, the original one and where it hits, it usually grows fairly slowly. And unlike some cancers where you get a cancer and there's kind of this urgency, oh, we have to remove it immediately because that's because it's growing, it's gonna cause more damage, da 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 da. Hmm. There's, there's the, um, uh, chondrosarcoma can start growing much faster at certain stages of the disease, but for the most part, it grows slowly enough that even taking a few months to sort out a treatment, it isn't gonna change the prognosis, hmm. you know, generally speaking. Got it. And so, yeah, so that's really allowed me to be a little bit slow and deliberate, even though I often try to make things occur within weeks, you know, days or weeks, and I often do, it, I can wait. You know, right now I'm, I'm about to start a new treatment. It's not going to start for um, another few weeks. Um, uh, it'll take me some months to know whether it's worked or not. Mm. It may not work. I no, I'll have up more opportunities beyond this one. If this one doesn't do it, I've got other things I can do. And that's, and that's, that gets into what you said that even today, I'm still making decisions. I'm still in this process. Um, 
chondrosarcoma, uh, there, there are different variations, which I'm not going to go into all the variations. Aside from this, most commonly it's conventional, low grade, or it's high grade, and then there's other subtypes, et cetera. Uh, but for most of them, they're chemo-resistant, meaning there's a very little, very low chance that traditional chemotherapies will make a difference, maybe a 5% chance. And we all know that chemos can be very hard to go through. So they're rarely used. There are some cases, but they're rarely used. They're largely radiation resistant. They're not, they're not completely radiation resistant. If you put enough radiation on them, you can do something, but it changes the cost benefit analysis. So if it's low grade and you can get big, you can take it out surgically, you don't do radiation for it. If it's close to vital organs and you can't get big margins, you can't really get the, the tumor and around it, then what they do is they will radiate to try to clean it up, knowing that the surrounding tissue could, is likely to have uh, lingering cancer risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that does relate to my, my situation where we've talked about getting, I got proton radiation, uh, which is a which is an advanced kind of radiation specifically that helps you get close to uh, structures like in my case the the spinal cord because my uh, surgery went right to the the spinal cord uh, uh, yeah or or the dura which is the tissue around the spinal cord mm -hmm. right um, but I mentioned that the uh, the treatment really the only treatments for chondrosarcoma are surgery, physically taking it out with these margins, uh, or the radiation that I just mentioned, that's considered treatment in terms of trying to, to stop the cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but then beyond that, there isn't treatment. Once chondrosarcoma starts coming back, once it starts spreading, uh, the, only, the only thing to do is management. It's taking out what you can see. Uh, but if it's already spreading in your system, the expectation is it will keep showing up. So, so current treatments are to, if it, oh, and when it moves, it almost always goes to the lungs. And that, does, that is my situation. It's gone mm. from my spine, which fortunately has not gone, it hasn't returned there, which is fortunate, but it's been showing up in my lungs and causing uh, lung tumors. Uh, still bone cancer, but in my lungs. So that's led to one surgery after another? Has that been the... So my situation, I'm going to walk through the um, kind of the order of things, but there was a yeah. first major surgery, and then I had a, another surgery, and then I've had uh, two more lung surgeries and one um, uh, ablation, which is another thing to, you can do to manage. Ablations are either um, a small incision, they go in and they blast uh, tissue to kill it, or, or you can do radiation and, and make uh, strong radiation hit from different directions and burn what's ever in the crosshairs. Okay. And that's a, that's a, a radiation ablation. So I had one of those. Okay. Um, but but these, these physical removing them is really only managing the disease and it's aggressive. It'll keep showing up. It's not a good prognosis. And that's where this is. You know, some people have a bad cancer and they get a cancer and that means that within, you know, weeks, you know, they're gone. I, I don't have that, which is, you know, fortunately, I, I'm not, I haven't had that immediate risk. However, it's a bad diagnosis. It's a bad cancer in that 
there really aren't treatments to get it under control. Hmm. So uh, what you do have and what I've pursued is um, clinical trials where they're looking at different medications, different things. Uh, um, There's all the advances going on in cancer, which is wonderful. And the options for someone like me to try to get it out of my system, which is to take a chance on things and see, well, maybe this will work, maybe that will work. There's some things that you can try off-label, which means they've been approved for other cancers. Um, And there may or may not be indication that would help this cancer. Um, Or there's clinical trials, which uh, usually aren't for chondrosarcoma, but sometimes we can get in if it's a sarcoma trial or if it's a early trial where they take all cancers, sometimes you can get into those. There's very, very little research on um, unusual conditions because the money really goes to, rightfully, to who's the largest group that's gonna benefit. So diseases like, like this are referred to as orphan diseases where, where they borrow from the research typically from other conditions. Right. Yeah, right. which is, yeah, which again, in terms of acceptance, it is what it is. It makes sense. My story to kind of go through it, uh, run through it a little bit quickly. Uh, we've talked about the, the original diagnosis. It was originally a treatment plan of removing it with uh, the best margins we could. Um, but it was in a very difficult place. It involved the spine and ribs. And so it was a two-part surgery that happened one day, one day off, another day, uh, 22 hours, 10 hours on the first day, 12 on the second, moving um, vertebra and ribs and some lung in that one and uh, reconstructing with five rods and 20 plus screws and really creative and they were top top surgeons um the plan was they did took a section of a leg bone of a fibula uh removed it from my own leg and fused it in above and to the vertebra above and below um, into the spine and made it living bone so it could grow into the the above and below vertebra Uh i have a a nine level fusion with metal and bone, which has grown in, it has fused. Nine and level, you mean nine vertebral? Nine, nine vertebral, vertebral yeah. levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, basically the upper uh, chest area is all, is all like that. So very significant surgery. The good news of it was that the coping and most of what we talked about in the other, earlier podcast were a phase of coping, of getting through this surgery with this hope of potentially having things under control. You know, it was, we thought it was low grade. We thought there was a a reasonably good chance of getting out of it, focus on physical recovery and 90% chance thinking we're in the clear. However, it was high grade, we learned. And I still have and continue, had a 90% chance about of not getting it to show up again in the spine but about a 30% chance that even though they already took it out, that it would already be in the bloodstream and that it would metastasize. Mm. Um, so I talked about, you kind of live with, with, some, with a lot of cancers, you might live kind of under this dark cloud. And so it was a 10% cloud and then it was a 30% cloud. Um, a lot of focus on recovery. Um, in 
about two, uh, in 2015, so about a year or so later, a year and some months later, um, it did metastasize. The first metastasis showed up. Um, it wasn't clear at the time if it was, but we removed it, we analyzed it. It was a metastasis. There was still some hope that maybe it was done, that maybe it wasn't actually in the bloodstream because of where the original one was. Maybe it just moved a little bit. Right. And, um, but the odds were poorer. And it was, and uh, that was a significant time for me in coping that I want to come back to was when it became clear that I was at pretty high risk for this progression uh, that I've, that's been happening um, and how that relates to skills, including mindfulness and including some one of the questions that came in. Um, from that point, there was another metastasis showed up. Um, there weren't clinical trials that I was eligible for. I realized I wanted to do a systems treatment, not just a local at the spot treatment but I didn't qualify for any clinical trials that, that made sense. So I had a ablation and then more metastases showed up within a, within a year. Um, and then I still wasn't eligible for trials, but I found an off label treatment. This was when immunotherapies, uh, the first immunotherapies were just getting FDA approved mm. and it was, and there was an argument for doing an off-label and I actually got approved and that from the drug company was going to provide free immunotherapy for me. I was scheduled to start taking it. I was presented at a tumor board and a researcher who I'd spoken to before realized that he now did have a trial that I could do. And I didn't do the immunotherapy. I went into my first clinical trial. It was very interesting. I could go into the, the, you know, what, what it was about, it was, um, but it had to do with ways that one mutation in my cancer might be similar to BRCA uh, cancer. Um, and there was a drug which is used for um, uh, BRCA positive ovarian cancer. And I went on that trial. And then in terms of the story, wow. Wow. Uh, you know, the story was I was getting um, uh, ovarian cancer treatment. You know, like what? So what are you getting? Well, I'm being treated for ovarian cancer. I don't right. have ovarian cancer, but I'm getting treated for ovarian cancer. Right. right. So, but, but I was on that trial uh, for, for about a year and a half going through different parts of it. It unfortunately doesn't seem to have made a difference. I was able to get into a next trial, which was very exciting, which was a personalized cancer vaccine that would then be combined with a different immuno, with an immunotherapy, which I hadn't been on yet. Um, where they actually made a, made a vaccine specific to very um, uh, small mutations in my cancer tissue. Mm. And I was on that for um, uh, the past year. And unfortunately, and this one was very exciting in that it came with the possibility of cure, you know, the possibility that this could really wipe things out. Because, uh, because they were creating a vaccine specifically for your tissue. They did. For, for yeah. your cancer tissue. For my cancer. Not yeah. something. Named, on on yeah. the Facebook, we, we had different names come up, and the, uh, the, the winning name was Vaxelrod. So, <laughs> so but I had my, I had my vaccine, um, mm -hmm. and then we added the immunotherapy, but the cancers progressed. 
So uh, I'm off that clinical trial as of just, just recently, very uh, recently. Uh, I'm off that clinical trial. I actually just signed in to another clinical trial, which is uh, a targeted therapy uh, uh, where there's, there's a mutation they've identified from my cancer, which, is, which happens in about half of the people with chondrosarcoma, and I happen to have it. Uh-huh. And they've been trying to make a t- targeted therapies is one of the hot areas that's been in cancer. Uh-huh. They've been working on targeted therapies for that. And I'm on an experimental targeted therapy for a specific mutation uh-huh. that uh-huh. occurred uh-huh. in my cancer. Uh-huh. That's, that's kind of just the outline, just so people can kind of hear the story. And a significant shift is going from early on thinking maybe we're out of the woods and there's a shadow to, okay, no, it's land, it's landed. And now it's um, this situation where um, we live in a reality, and I say we, my wife and I, where it's not a crisis and yet it is a crisis. You know, this is our lives. Like people hear, oh, my, Rebecca will tell someone, oh, my husband has a, uh, you know, has cancer, has an appointment, he's going to try to get into a clinical trial or what, mm-hmm. oh my God, like everything's on fire and mm. things aren't on fire, except they are on fire. Mm-hmm. And it's this really kind of crossroads. Right. Of, yeah. Um, but we're okay. You know, like we have our lives and we have this, which speaks to some of your introduction, which I thought was very on point mm. of, you know, of, of, of these dual kinds of existence. Um, Let me ask you just an yeah. um, in-the-moment question before, and yeah. then I, I'm really interested in what you have to say. You, you referenced back to a certain point when it sounded like you were aware that you were, you, the pattern of metastases was developing and that you were not out of the woods and that you, you were going to say some things about use of skills there. But let me ask you about use of skills right now. I, yeah. when, when you talk, how, you know, of course, you're many years into this. So you might say you've, you know, had a whole learning history of how to have cancer, how to talk about having cancer and everything. But it's just, I just, I just can imagine, I'm curious, and I can imagine that a lot of people would be curious, how are you able to sit here and tell the details of this story, sort of like as if it was a medical report? And at the same time where I'm sitting here feeling like, well, I'm only like two synapses away from the fact that your limbic system, your emotional system has got there. The implications emotionally of all these things are so, are so big that how do you do that? Is that something conscious you do? Is it something learned? Is it something automatic? Uh, It's hard to answer. You know, I I can tell you that when I am in, um, you know, when I am dealing with more fear and anxiety, when there is a new thing that hits, um, you know, I, I can intellectualize as kind of a, as kind of a defense, you know, a coping, throw myself into researching. There's been lots of times where I'll go down these rabbit holes of trying to understand this and trying to understand that. Um, and, and I don't know that, that, that I, I mean, I feel like I'm very tied up in it. It doesn't feel like I, I don't feel distant from it. Yeah. And yet focusing, being able to talk about the details and focus on the details and work through, there's definitely a part of that that's, that's me. You know, there's definitely a part of it that's, that's um, you know, and I find it all fascinating. I mean, even when I was terrified of the surgery mm-hmm. and even when I was 
you know, dealing with the pain of and and the discomfort of going through this surgery, um, what they were able to do is miraculous. If I tell you kind of the details of how do you cut away bone away from the spinal cord without being at without uh, minimal risk of doing any damage to, to the thing. It's unbelievable. It, it's unbelievable. And, 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 and I also had the contrast of two different surgery teams that were gonna do it differently, where one was gonna go cutting bone toward the cord, the other slid um, saws, wires, under the vertebra oh to my God. cut them outward, away from the cord, to not be risking, the, there was still risk, you could still nip the, the dura, but nothing like trying to cut toward the dura. They were cutting away from the dura. And it's just, wow. it's just, it's just fascinating. You know, it's, it's incredible. Thank, God. Thank and, God you have that capacity. To oh, well, capacity. I have the capacity, but yeah, but it's just, it's just, a, it, I could go on and on and on and on. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and that's been uh, throughout. So, yeah. you know, it's, an, it's, this wasn't my chosen hobby. But it's quite yeah. a hobby, you know, it's quite a like learning about all this stuff. And one thing which I do get to do, by the way, is I've been very active, some people listening, some people that are putting questions are, are on online support groups that I participate in. And one thing which has been very rewarding and very significant has been being able to share things uh, from my learning specifically to the chondrosarcoma community um, who may not have the, the, the you know, my approach to things, and yet they can benefit from all this, you know, clinical sorting through, laying out options, describing what I've done, yeah, uh, connecting them to clinical trials sometimes. Um, so yeah, that's, that's good. That's it's been, it, fine. It, it very much, very, very much. Mm. Um, mm. So I, I think I've, I've gone through the story. There were a few things that we thought of them to maybe hit on this. Some of them related to questions that came up. Yeah. Um, one that came up from a few people from that, from the cancer group yeah. and, uh, and, and could be relevant to other people using DBT for cancer is this question about what's being accepted or what's being problem solved and, sh and the shift in the yeah. story from things like before the diagnosis, it was a problem of pain uh, affecting functioning, driving and, and things and walking and things like that. And, and it's incredible, you know, I mean, it felt like I was being tortured at times. I, I it, it, the way the nerves were hitting. Mm, mm. Um, and, but once it was cancer, everything shifted and it was kind of like the pain isn't the important thing. It was kind of like, you know, and I was exercising again, I was doing all these things that I wasn't doing because of pain. But now I was working on, on, on training my, my, you know, conditioning to get ready for massive surgery. And my focus all went there. And what I, what I, uh, when I thought about this a little bit from the questions that came in around, how do you know to shift from one to another and what do you do? And actually it comes back to DBT. You know, DBT is working with people who often have these multiple problems and we have what we call a treatment hierarchy. You know, we, we organize ourselves. What's the most important thing? What's the next important thing? Which lets us, as DBT um, providers, move quickly from this is the target. Oh, no, that's the thing. And while I never thought of it in, the, in exactly those terms, I mean, I always knew I had my priorities. Reflecting on it, this is my cancer treatment hierarchy. And, and actually, it's very clear, and it's been. 
it's the disease. You know, what am I doing? You know, is there something that needs to be done to try to control the disease? Is there mm-hmm. something I can do that I'm, to, you know, to, to focus on? Is it a surgery? Is it a radiation? You know, what am I doing? That's and your highest, that's your first priority. You that's mean. the first priority. If there's movement there, then I can look to the next thing. The next thing that, that's been the focus, um, at least the way things have worked and the way I've, I've done it so far, is really, am I able to think? Am I able to think? Am I able to function mentally? Um, which relates to things like, can I work? Can I communicate? Can I, whatever that is. Um, and that hasn't been the focus except for when I get involved with things that make it hard to think. And, you know, and, and, and that comes to, um, some of the next ones. The next one after that is my physical functioning, um, is, uh, times where I go back into physical therapy because something is, is not working. I'm right now back in physical therapy because of ways that my reconstruction, my reconstruction is affecting my, you know, ways that my body is compensating. That's not, you know, creating mm. problems, mm. um, to make sure I can do, you know, my body is, is mobile, which it is. It's incredibly mobile considering the condition it's in. Mm. After that comes pain. And is there anything that, I, that can be done to help? I'm in chronic pain. My body hurts right now. Sometimes it hurts a lot more. Sometimes it hurts a little less. But it's, it's you know, it's challenging. Mm. And are there things to do on pain? And things to do on pain, some of those are relate to skills. You know, a lot of them actually relate to skills. Uh, some of them are, are there medications, you know, and that I do take. There are anti-seizure medications that are approved for treating certain kinds of nerve pain. I have nerve pain. I've been on some of these different anti-seizure medications. Mm. Some of these medications worked fine. And then after I was on them for a while, I started to develop cognitive symptoms. Like I was getting mentally fatigued and physically Mm. fatigued. Mm. And I needed to get off because I'd rather have the pain. And that's come up numerous times. You know, coming off surgeries, they give you medications. And, and the balance of being on a medication versus I can't think the way I want to think. For me, it's very obvious. I'd rather have the pain, you know, and there's a balance in there. Because being able to think and think effectively is higher on your, is higher on my hierarchy. Yeah. And and that's me move and it becomes very obvious. I'll try things and then I'll see what happens. And then it becomes very clear. Um, and then what's, what I've been addressing after that really kind of, I think is the next priority. Uh, it's only recent that I'm really throwing um, skills at it and problem solving is fatigue. Is, uh, fatigue has become, it's been present pretty much throughout, but there's been points where it's interfered more. Some of the medication trials have brought on more fatigue that's made it harder to um, function in ways that, that I want to. Mm-hmm. Or, or at least, at least they've they've infringed on more of what I what I hold on to, because I do let go of a lot, but I try to hold on to certain things. And then, so then it becomes: is there some problem solving to be done there? Is there acceptance to be done there? Is there you know what can be done there? But it's kind of this whole list of cancer related stuff, and right. it's kind right. of impossible to actively problem solve, just just like in DBT that we do. 
you know, you try to do two, three things, you know, go after two, three targets at the same time and you don't do anything. Mm. So you organize, mm. Mm. you know? Um, so that's both kind of my mind, I think, and myself, but it certainly is what I've been practicing for years and years in the clinical space. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it sort of roughly parallels with the idea that if you have any kind of pain or disability, there that you're, you could, and I've worked with a couple of kids like this that don't want to go to school because they have pain in their belly. Um, and, and, and it's understandable they don't want to go to school. And sitting through a classroom quietly when you're in pain is terrible. Um, so, but then the question is, what's your hierarchy? Because there, you, the idea would be, hopefully you want to get to the point where people can say, you know, what I most value is remaining functional. So that sort of, it's sort of like if you have an injury in sports or an injury at school, like do you, do you sit on the sidelines seeing the trainer and trying to get ready to go back in the game or do you go home? Uh, and then you're yeah. not, even, not even close to the game anymore. So I think for me, that's yeah. been a metaphor that I relate I, to when I hear you talking. It's sort of like your higher priority things are like, can I solve this? Let me do that. Can I keep thinking straight? I value my, my thinking. So let me do that. And then somewhere down here, even though it sounds like the worst of the worst is that the pain, the, the fatigue, the, dis, the limitations, but it's kind of like, how do I keep going? How do I stay in yeah. the game? Uh, even though yeah. I'm, and carry this with me instead of have this become my total roadblock. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, points where, where frustration has taken over, you know, where it's really been lots of frustration, were points where some of these lower things prevented me from functioning, you know? And, you know, so that's, uh, you know, I remember that coming up pre-diagnosis when my pain was getting out of control. And I have vivid memories of being in, of being in supervision sessions, trying to focus on what my, what my, uh, uh, psychology intern was telling me and mm. and my pain kept shooting and distracting me from being able to communicate and it was right. i remember that frustration and that was again before we figured out like what's going on mm. um mm. so but but it becomes very clear you know and i i think it becomes while all of these things are challenging knowing what i'm focusing on and at times dropping one because a higher one just popped up and you know what i'm you know, that's not, that's not it. And it also relates to the difference between acute pain and chronic pain. You know, acute pain, there's often a reason that you need to stop what you're doing and attend to it. Mm. But once it's pain signals that aren't really, you know, making a difference in terms of mm -hmm. how it's going to function, how it's, you know, um, that there's, not, there's essentially nothing to be done. And then it's a question of, can you accept it or can you do anything about it and to um anyway so that was one thing i wanted to, i wanted to share because it, it it was touched on and there were questions about it and i thought kind of giving that organization might be helpful let me suggest to uh just to you seth and anyone who would care who's listening that um i remember i don't know how far back it is but among the podcasts i've done there were one or two in a row I did that are called no dead ends because I started to realize that if you think the way you're thinking now, you're, you're a good example of this. 
is that in fact, in a way, there are no dead ends in life. I mean, you think, you think death would be a dead end. It actually isn't, depending how you think about it. Cancer sounds like it could be a dead end, a bad cancer. It, it's not really a dead end. And severe, even severe pain is not necessarily a dead end, but all of them are real. And so I tried to do a podcast of talking and it was sort of hierarchical, it was hi, hierarchized in a way, the way you're saying like, well, okay, what can you do? If there's no dead end, what could you do first? And it's not different than some DBT schemes, um, but, but I appreciate in your case, just hearing how you do that concretely. It makes, makes a lot of sense. I think it's skillful. Um, there, there, it relates, what you're saying right now relates to, to um, another of the, for me, I think also relates to another of the questions that came in. This was uh, John Mader's uh, question. Right. Um, who's very active in the in the DBT community, uh, and you mentioned last time, and he had a question about um, uh, psychedelic medication or psychedelic uh, substances that are currently being studied for some conditions, including cancer, and there and some of this pilot data showing perhaps that individuals with cancer who are given psychedelic substances may have uh, some uh, very significant um, response with regard to their depression related to the cancer um, and thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I have thought about. I mean, it does show up. It actually just showed up coincidentally uh, on one of the chondrosarcoma groups. Uh, someone just oh. brought this up and just put it, uh, a link, you know, showing something about this. And... Um, uh, and it sounds like, oh, is this some kind of, um, you know, uh, not not cure of the cancer, but cure to this existential, you know, um, thing that can happen, you know, getting getting uh, immobilized by by the fact that one has a, a potentially um, lethal uh, disorder. And what I was thinking, what, what for me. Uh, this comes back to mindfulness and not only, you know, pr uh, simple practice of the skills, but experiences that I relate to when I've really taken time to focus on mindfulness. And um, what I thought about a, a title came up. I don't know if I'm working on a book or not, but a title came up of uh, in DBT, we talk about crisis survival skills and thinking about mindfulness as existential crisis survival skills you know that there's a there's an aspect of of how do i deal with this existential crisis um before my first metastasis was caught i had uh signed up and was taking a um mindful mindfulness-based stress reduction course M mbsr which was which people may not be aware was um uh, predates DBT as as the, as the first studied um, Eastern meditation with with uh, uh, based uh, treatment mindfulness from meditation um, for mm -hmm. in the, originally for for chronic pain and then it's been applied to all kinds of other things with all kinds of wonderful amazing results treating depression treating all kinds of of different conditions and uh, as a DBT person um, and someone who is gone to some mindfulness retreats, I was aware that I wanted to get an, M an MBSR experience and take this. 
And then I developed chronic pain and then I developed cancer. And when I was in a place where things were settled down somewhat, I signed up, I had an opportunity to sign up for a course and I did. And I was uh, most of the way through the course when I got the scans showing here, this looks like a metastasis. And then I uh, finished the course, the timing worked out that I was able to finish the course and have my surgery. And I can't remember when I signed up for it, um, but I did go to a, my, another mindfulness retreat, the only one I've attended since, my di since I've been um, you know, dealing with the cancer. And it was a Marshall Linehan retreat in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, it's a three-day silent retreat. Um, and you get interviews with Marsha, um, a, a really amazing experience. And I uh, was struggling with my mortality and struggling with the diagnosis and what's my, what's happening here and what does this mean for my career and what's this mean for, you know, just all kinds of things, you know, where's, where's, right. the, where's this going? Right. And, um, and toward the end of that retreat, uh, during a walking meditation, I had this, um, this awakening, this epiphany that was about uh, seeing myself, um, and, well, not just seeing myself, seeing cycles of, of life and death and, and how things are connected and mm. really things that, that I think connect to what you're talking about, no dead ends, that, that all these connections um, and ways that things go on and, you know, I just had this, this uh, experience of being part of uh, a much larger cycle than just my my own, you know, what happens to me? You know, it's it's right. me. I'm I've got this disease, and it became this much larger thing. Mm. And when I think about uh, mindfulness retreats I've been on, uh, think about that experience. Um, think about this question about you know psychedelic medication, uh, you know taking psychedelic substances, and you mm. get this you know some kind of a awakening. It makes me it makes me think that these are very much connected. Uh, and another thing I mentioned is hearing about astronauts who are out in orbit and they get to see the Earth and they talk about when they first see the Earth, when they spend time looking at the Earth, suddenly the problems of the Earth seem completely different. Their whole mindset right. shifts. Right. Right. And and I think that um, the psychedelics are potentially a shortcut to getting that awakening. I suspect that the people that sign up for the research might be might be likely to be more more open to the possibility of getting that benefit. My personal uh, recommendation would be to seek some of these other ways of getting that. You know, I, I would I would encourage people to try mindfulness and maybe M MBSR um, to try different practices in that direction mm -hmm. to try to deal with the existential crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rather than rush to a pill, you know, rush to a substance. Mm -hmm. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe that could be applied broadly to people mm -hmm. um, with much more positive than negative effect. You know, but it, but I'm not but I'm not jumping on the bandwagon. Oh, I had I had this epiphany. I think others should get it much more quickly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. By the way, having had that kind of epiphany. Um, has that in some way stayed with you? Does that yeah. continue to affect your thinking or your functioning about uh, yeah. 
dealing with mortality and and cancer yeah yeah you know something that um uh you know this duality of of having a cancer and not knowing what my prognosis is you know i have i have in mind what what i'm going for and what i'm trying to do and i really don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work and and the odds aren't great you know i try to improve my odds and do things to improve my odds um but it also makes this duality of uh what kinds of um what kinds of projects do i get involved with what kinds of commitments do i make what's what are what are work what's work that i do that depends on what i do directly mm. versus what do i do that's contributing to others what do i do that's joint projects what are what are things that are not dependent on me mm -hmm. and um much much more of the time i'm leaning in those directions i i do have things that are that are dependent on me generally at this point because of um challenges with finding the people to share the projects with mm. and even then it's much more about building up other things than about you know my personal ambitions you know so my my focus on my own career my own life has, has shifted a lot and I think that some of that epiphany has um, made this a much more comfortable, you know, openness. You know, I'm curious about this, and we don't have time to go in it more, but I think next time we talk in a week from now, um, if we, there, there's something we didn't get to that I hope we can at the very beginning, and then bring Rebecca in to talk about her experiences but but um, you and I had talked a little about, and it sort of borders on this. Is I don't know. Once you're in these situations, and these these are the cards you've been dealt, how do you deal them without resentment, without uh, bitterness? Uh, I was running a, a group last night, and somebody was say, talking about something she's coped with, and I said, "And how does it? How are you left with that?" And she said. I'm just bitter all the time. Mm. And I don't think that's unusual. I think oh. it's, it's letting go of things again and again. So I wonder if next time we could just touch at least to the beginning a little about letting go, living with willingness within a situation that you would not never have chosen in a million years. But now you have to find how to live within it and how to make the best of it and, and how to hopefully um, spend as little of your life as possible just being bitter in a way that doesn't actually go anywhere. Um, so I just, I'd love to hear a little about that. It, it sort of follows a little bit one step away from what you're talking about now, but I'm just looking at the time and I know we have about one minute. It's, it sounds like a good plan. It does, okay. Yeah. All right, well, look, um, again, I, I don't wanna make some sort of, a, I can't make any kind of capstone comment about what you're doing. It just <laughs> speaks for itself and it's very, oh, I'm just so interested. I, I, I think your story and your way of holding your story and your way of experiencing it and living with it and coping with it is just remarkable. And I have no doubt people will learn from it if they sit and listen to this. So I, I hope so. Well, that'll go on. Um, so I'll see you uh, and, and your wife uh, next week when we'll continue this conversation. Thanks, so, Charlie. And thank, and thank you, you very much. And thank you, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, bye everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.